beginning an Advent series, and today we'll be looking at the Christian virtue of hope. So go ahead and flip in your Bibles, if you brought one, to Psalm 42. It'll be up also up on the screen, potentially, where you can follow along. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, no matter how our service may look different than we had planned, your word remains the same and, and you are still present with us. And what is most important, that we have gathered to worship you is still true. Would we gather... And we ask that you'll give us safety from the coronavirus as we strive to be faithful. Lord, may you keep this gathering free from the virus. May you protect us. Lord, I pray for all of our members, uh, especially those who have to go into work, essential workers. Lord, may you protect them from the virus. May you bring an end to this pandemic. We ask you to do this in your holy name. Lord, may you give us perseverance as we're looking at a winter that could in many ways be very difficult for many of us. Lord, give us perseverance not to question your goodness, to endure uh, with, with patience, with hope. Lord, may we endure in a way that glorifies you and that makes you happy. And Lord, we especially lift up those right now who are alone across our community, within our, our church body, who, who um, this pandemic ha have made even more isolated. Lord, you are the God who is close to the lonely, close to the, the downhearted, and may you be ever so in a very deep and obvious way to them in this coming season. God, you loved us enough to pursue us into the darkest of places. May you remind all of us that you are still that God. And now may you give me freedom as I preach to forget myself. Jesus, may you be made much of in this service. May your word be powerful and unchained. 
We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. My freshman year of college, I had a pretty good five-year plan. It was very tight and needy, and, and tight and needy. It's very tidy, very simple. I was going to meet my wife probably sophomore year of college. That was my plan. Um, we date for a year or two, then we get married that week after graduation, because why wait? And then um, I'd go straight to seminary, graduate in three years, and then I'd go spend my life doing vocational ministry. That was my very tidy, neat plan. And uh, life ended up not really looking like that. It ended up being a little more complicated. Um, I uh, did not go to seminary right after undergrad. I did not meet my wife while I was in college. I graduated very single. And, um, you know, while my plan had this very straight line appeal to it, reality was much more jagged. Um, and I think that's kind of how life works. Uh, you know, we have our plans, but for most of us, our lives are probably more like a jagged line than like a straight line to where we want to go. And, and life is just complex and messy. And, um, and if we didn't think that, 2020 came along. And we realized, wow, none of us expected 2020 to go like it did. And 2020 ruined all of our five-year plans. That's just the way life works. It's messy, it's complicated, it doesn't go how we think it will. And we're beginning a season of Advent, and we're going to be looking at four different Christian virtues throughout Advent. We'll be looking at um, the Christian virtue of hope, then of peace, then of joy, and finally of love. Um, And so when we talk about hope, which is what we're talking about this morning, I can give you a definition of that. Hope, the way the Bible looks at it, is, is expectant waiting. Like I'm waiting, expecting something. And we can easily picture that. Just think of when you go to a doctor's office and you sit in the waiting room, you are expectantly waiting for the doctor to come see you. You have good reason. If you have an appointment, that the doctor will see you. It's very clean cut. It's very normal. It's very ordinary. There's nothing crazy about it. But hope, expectant waiting in this life, which is very messy, is a little bit closer to when you go to a waiting room with your four-year-old son to get his flu shot. And he's crying and hiding under the chairs and screaming that he won't let you and this is not going to happen. That's what hoping in real life is more like. And so what I thought would be helpful is is to uh, look at this morning what is a hope that can actually thrive in the messiness and the trenches of life. What does that hope look like? What does that kind of expectant waiting look like? And so we're going to be looking at Psalm 42 this morning, which if there's a messy psalm, Psalm 42 is messy. It's hard to organize. Um, it, it kind of vacillates between hope and doubt and joy and anger and in and, and not the most logical ways, um, but it also gives us a deep uh, insight into what hope looks like in a messy world. And specifically what we'll find out is that, a mess, is that Christian hope in a messy world is characterized by a deep longing for communion with God. It's characterized by preaching truth to our feelings. And lastly, it's characterized by worship. So let's look at our first point, that Christian hope is characterized by a deep longing for communion with God. Let's go ahead and look at verses 1 to 4. And actually, before I jump into that, just to give you an idea of, of how, again, this, this psalm is actually really difficult to, to organize. But when you're looking at it, which hopefully you are, you have your Bible open, that's the best way to follow along. Um, you, you get first a complaint, verses 1 to 4. Then you get this refrain, verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Then verses 6 to 10 is, is, is another complaint, and then it finishes with that refrain. Now this com- complexity is in there because that second complaint kind of goes back and forth between complaint and, and, and refrain. But anyways, that's, that's the easiest way to kind of organize this passage. 
So we're looking here at the first complaint. This is categorized as an individual lament. Psalms are, are typically categorized according to what they do. So you have psalms of praise, because they're primarily about praising God. Psalm 100, which we use for call to worship, was psalm of praise. This is a psalm of lament. It's primarily about the psalmist bringing a complaint, a struggle, a cry for deliverance to God. And so let's go ahead and look at what this first complaint is in verses 1 to 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What I love about the Psalms is it has this rich imagery. So the image here is, is of a deer coming to a, a riverbed, and the riverbed is dry. In the Judean wilderness, outside of the rainy season, this would have not been that uncommon. And you've got to think how thirsty a deer is that he comes to this riverbed hoping for water, and he's so thirsty that he's panting. It's not a normal way for a deer to breathe. This deer is urgently thirsty, and this riverbed is dry. And then the psalmist says, this describes my soul. I'm thirsting for God, and I'm not finding him. And the reason that he's experiencing this is given to us in verses 3 to 4. Is that he is away from the temple where God dwells. He remembers back, I remember when I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, but that's not where he is now. This is something that every Christian can empathize with. Times when God seems very distant. When we cry out to him and we're longing for him and we wish he were present, but he's just not. We're like a deer that's come to a riverbed hoping for life and it's just dry. That's the complaint that the psalmist brings. He longs for communion with God. Now this brings us to probably one of the central theological truths that I want to draw out for us this morning. Because this, this psalm is giving us a picture of what does hope look like in a messy world. And the first thing we see is that Christian hope is more characterized by longing for more of God than it is characterized by contentment with what we've already attained. Do you get that? Christian hope, true Christian hope, is more characterized by longing for more of God, my soul pants for you, than by this kind of contentment with, well, I've already arrived. Look what I've attained. Look at how much I've grown. Christian hope is more characterized by longing than by contentment. Think of it. The, the psalmist doesn't just reminisce. This isn't like an exercise in nostalgia. Like, oh, I remember the good old days when I used to hang out in the temple and I'd worship with my friends. That was so great. Oh, well, well, let's move on. What's next? This is a no. I remember when I could come into God's presence. He was so vividly near. I want more of that. I'm not content with what I've attained in the past. I want more. My soul is thirsting for more. I must have it. Like a deer has to have water or they will die. I will die if I do not have more of God. That's what Christian hope looks like. It's, it's characterized by this deep longing. And this is all throughout Scripture. In Matthew 5, Jesus in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's interesting. I think we would think that Jesus should say, well, blessed are those who are righteous. Right? I mean, it's like we don't give out, it's like, it's like Jesus is giving out like a participation award. Right? Like, you tried hard. Blessed are you. Jesus says, blessed are those not who have arrived, who have righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, who thirst for righteousness. Paul in Philippians 3, 
he's just um, basically let out his whole, like, I don't know, resume, why he's a big deal. He's a Jew of Jews, he's a Pharisee, he's done all this great stuff. If anyone had, you know, permission to kind of rest in his attainments, it would have been Paul. But he says this, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. That's a Look, for most of us, it's like, I have not attained that much. I can forget what happened behind. When you're Paul and you planted the New Testament church and you're writing scripture to say, look, that doesn't matter what's already happened. Forget what lies behind. I'm straining forward to what lies ahead, and I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Christian hope, Christian maturity is characterized more by a longing for more of God than contentment with what we've already attained. This is interesting. I think a lot of times we tend to think of the Christian life as like, well, the young are the ones who are zealous and excited and, you know, maybe a little bit foolish, but man, they got, they're just excited and, and then they grow and they get some years under their belt and they gain wisdom and their zeal goes away. And, and, and there's truth in that wisdom. There's, there's wisdom that unless you're Solomon and God like reveals this to you at, in a dream, like there's, there's wisdom that you only gain through years lived. But maturity is, is, is not characterized by a lack of zeal, but by greater zeal. Christian maturity, when I'm 85, if I want to be a mature Christian, I will long for God more than I do at 33, not less. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Now the question we have to ask is, okay, why is, we would think arriving at God would be the mark of Christian hope and maturity, not longing for God. Why is longing for God the mark of true Christian hope, true Christian maturity? That's a great question. And the reason is because we still live in a fallen world. If we've placed our faith in Christ, that means Christ has radically transformed us. We are new creations. But we're still sinner saints. Yes, we're new creations, but the flesh is still present and still wars with us. We still oftentimes do what we don't want to do. And we still live in bodies that are limited. We go tired, our understanding, like we misunderstand God, we make mistakes. And so to think of it this way, when we encounter God in this world, you may hate this analogy, you may love it, but just bear with me. When we, when we commune with God in this world, it's like we're talking to him on a really bad Zoom call with really spotty internet, and the, the picture is pixelated, and it keeps pausing, and the audio goes in and out, and so we're not totally sure what he's saying all the time. But every now and then, the picture clears. And it's not pixelated, and we hear it coming through, and it's like we're having this immediate apprehension and experience of God's graciousness and glory and presence. And then it goes back to pixelated, and our hearts say, no, I want more of that. I'm not satisfied with having seen God clearly once. Like, I want more of that. Paul, the way he describes it, he says, in this life, it's like we're seeing in a, in a mirror that's foggy and hazy, and one day we'll see God face to face. So here's, a, here's what we are longing for, and this is why longing is a mark of maturity. We're not longing for the day when we'll have a perfect Zoom connection. We're longing for the day when we'll see God in person, face to face. 
And none of us have attained that yet. And so we long for more of God, more communion, a deeper communion, more personal communion, more transformative communion with God. Christian hope is more characterized by longing for more of God than by contentment with what we've already attained. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what characterizes our communion with God these days? Is it characterized by an urgent longing for, I want God, I want more of you? Or maybe are, are we kind of resting on our laurels? The years of service we've given, the, the past spiritual experiences we've had, that, I'm, just, I'm content with that. Or maybe it's not we're content with what we've obtained, but frankly, we've just, we've satisfied our hearts with other things, and we're full. We're not hungering and thirsting because we've just eaten a full meal of everything else other than Jesus. And so when we come before him, we're, just, we're not hungry, we're not thirsty for him. That's why Advent is a season, not a single day. It's a season of, of preparation, when we can slow down you know, most of us live lives like the Energizer Bunny. We're just like, we're going. But we get this month where we can just pause and slow down and ask ourselves questions of, where is, what, does, what does characterize my communion with the Lord these days? Is it, uh, I, just, I desire more of him or have I grown content? How can I restore a deep hunger for God's presence? Because again, true Christian hope and maturity is more characterized by longing for more of God than contentment with what we've already attained. Now, I, I need to make a second kind of a secondary point that comes under this first point that uh, hope is characterized by communion with God. Um, and, and pointing out the fact that when we read this psalm, I think the picture we typically have is like me in my room by myself, and I'm like, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, and God seems distant, so I'm asking God, please be near me. But that's not the picture that's actually going on in this psalm. The psalmist is not upset that God is not revealing himself to him wherever he is. He's upset that he cannot come to the temple where God resides. He's upset because he's not in the capital of Jerusalem. Now, that's going to seem really weird to us. Let me do a quick poll. Who here wept tears this morning, including online? Who here wept tears this morning because you could not worship in Washington, D.C.? Nobody. That's a, that, so I, I have to explain a little bit of why the psalmist is so upset that he cannot be present at the temple. And this, we're going we're gonna to kind of dig deep into this, but it's really important. So follow along. Give me your best attention that you can. In the Old Testament, God reveals commands not just for how we should live, like don't steal, don't lie, don't murder, all that stuff. He also reveals commands for how we should worship him. And those commands were in many ways just as serious as his commands that governed how we should live. And one of the commands he gave is that worship should happen in a specific location. Initially, it was a tabernacle. That was a tent of meeting that followed the Israelite people as they were going through the wilderness, and, and God was present there. And so God said, you can only offer sacrifices in the tent of meeting. And, and, and the cost of, of, of offering sacrifices elsewhere was very high. In Leviticus 17, it says, and, and you got to remember in Israelite worship, like sacrifices was the bread and butter. That was like your Sunday morning, you know, of, of how we worship. It was, it was, that was the, the, the essence of, of, of Israelite worship. Leviticus 17 says, whoever offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and it's like, bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord. That man shall be cut off from his people. 
So if you didn't, if you didn't bring your worship to God at his tabernacle, you could be removed from the community of Israel. That's a big deal. Just like it's a big deal to remove someone from membership at a church. This might have been even a bigger deal because you weren't just being removed from where you worship, you actually had to go live somewhere else. It was a big deal. And the reason for that is given us, uh, uh, we're giving a little bit more details into why God commanded worship to happen in a geographic location when we moved to the temple. So there's a tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and then once Israel's established, King Solomon actually builds God a temple that replaces that tent of meeting. And Solomon, after he finishes the temple, he has this prayer of dedication that it's worth reading in full at some point, maybe in your personal devotions, um, but it, it, it just on so many levels has got great stuff. But, it, but it, 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 it spells out for us the importance of what was going on in temple worship, and I want to read a little bit of it for you. So again, stay with me. King Solomon, he's praying a prayer of dedication over the temple. In 2 Chronicles 6, verses 18 to 21, Solomon prays this. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Just pause there. So God is commanding worship to happen to him in a geographic location, but that by no means means that God is somehow confined in a building. God is the maker of heaven and earth. He's not confined to a building. Solomon acknowledges that. God, I know that you're not confined to a building. You, you, you are everywhere. But still, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night towards this house, the place where you promise to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. Listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen from heaven, your, whole, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Saying, yes, God, I know you don't dwell in houses, but will you please make your presence here in a unique way so that we can know when we pray here, we know that you're hearing because you really are dwelling in this temple. It's an amazing prayer to make. And God answers it. Because after the prayer of dedication, God sends fire down on the sacrifice and he fills the temple with his glory. And that is God saying, Solomon, I've heard your prayer. And it is answered. My presence will be in the temple. And so the psalmist, when he is, you know, in this place, he's out in, in the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar, which is the farthest north you can get in Israel away from Jerusalem, He's legitimately separated from God's presence because God's presence is uniquely found in the worship that's happening in the temple. Okay, so then how does this apply to us? Because the temple doesn't stand anymore. It was destroyed in 70 AD. We don't need to travel to Israel, Jerusalem to worship God. So we're going to keep getting d- deeper into this, but you got to just st- stay with me. This is really important. Jesus radically reoriented worship when he came. Radically reoriented worship. And we see this in John chapter 4 when Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman. Now there's a debate between Israelites and Samaritans. The Samaritans said, no, the, the, the temple mount where the temple is is this one mountain. And the Jews said, no, it's the temple mount in Jerusalem. And there was this big debate, which mountain is God meant to be worshipped on? That's the background here. But Jesus says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, the other mountain, will you worship the Father. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The time the psalm was written, God had made his presence specifically in the temple. And so if you wanted to be in God's presence, yes, God is everywhere, but God is uniquely present in the temple. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The day is coming when God's presence will not be geographically confined to a specific building in the land of Israel. It's wherever his people worship him in spirit and in truth. Where is God's spirit now? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. I mean, do you, do you see this starting to connect? So the temple was God's presence in the Old Testament. Well, the temple's gone. Where's God's spirit? Your body is a temple. And i got to make one more point, though, because we're going to completely miss this unless we get this point. When Paul says your body, he's saying y'all's body. He's not saying you individually. He's saying y'all's body. He's talking about the body of Christ. The, the Spirit of God is no longer confined to walls. It's confined to when the people of God come together to worship Him in spirit and truth. And that can happen in a church building, that can happen in a cathedral, that can happen on the fields. It doesn't matter where. It's wherever God's people gather to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so I think we could refine our first point, and we're trying to apply this to us by saying Christian hope is characterized by longing for God's presence specifically as it's found uniquely in the gathered worship of God's people. Now there's some, I think, present relevance, and maybe you see where I'm going with this, and I'm going to do my best to apply this to our, our present circumstance, recognizing this is complex, and so um, I'm doing my best, and um, I, I encourage you to hear what I'm saying um, and, and weigh it for whether it's true or not. Weigh it for whether I'm being faithful to Scripture, and if I'm not, forget it. And if I am, um, let us follow God. But for the first time in my life, probably the first time in all of our lives, there's a risk to worshiping God in person. I've never, I mean, there's a risk. A pandemic that's killed over 250,000 people will probably kill more than half a million before it's all said and done. You walk in this door and you, you put yourself in a room with, with other people, you are increasing the risk that you could catch COVID-19. I've never lived in a time where there was a risk, other than like, oh, someone might look at me weird, but a real risk to my health. What do we do about that? Well, my suggestion for us is, when, especially when we're considering what, what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 42 of what Christian hope looks like and the truth of God's specific presence in the gathered worship of his people is that just because there are risks does not necessarily mean we should not meet together. I'm going to try and nuance this, but not so much that I'm blunting it completely. Just because there's risk doesn't mean we ought not to meet together to worship. And I think this is a time when we as Christians should look to the example of the persecuted church around the world. There are brothers and sisters in countries where it is not legal to be Christian who place their lives in far greater risk every time they meet, and they still decide to meet together. And I think what they're, what they're telling us, by the example of their lives, many of whom are then killed, is they're saying, look, yes, there's risk, but meeting together, worshiping God, is worth it. Yes, there's risk. We'll never minimize the risk. But worshiping God is worth it. 
Worshiping God together is one of the greatest blessings we have as a people of God, where we mirror the, the worship that is happening in the universal church around the world and what's happening in heaven. As the angels surround the throne and they, they fall on their faces for all eternity, holy, 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 and we mirror that for an hour every Sunday morning. It's a moment when heaven meets earth. And we come out of our mundane lives and we, we think on these transcendent truths that have changed history and that are bringing everything to a triumphant ending when Jesus will return. There's a great blessing that cannot be replaced. And God's people meet together to worship. Jesus is worth the risk, even to our own lives. Now there's an objection. Well, what about our neighbors? And I feel this. I think this is a very complicated question. I don't think there's easy answers to it, but it's one thing to say, well, let's count the cost for following Jesus for myself. It's another thing to say, well, let's count the cost of following Jesus for someone else. And what happens if we put in danger our neighbors who have no part in our, in our faith community? It seems to be a very poignant moral question. And I think that this is where, you know, we understand there are exceptions. If you regularly care for, for an elderly person or someone who's high risk, yes, that needs to be a factor in this. But for most of us, I think that the, the precautions we take of wearing masks, of practicing good social distancing guidelines, if we are doing those well when we meet, and then doing that throughout the week when we meet with our neighbors as an act of love to our neighbors, I think we can minimize the risk. Will we eradicate the risk? No. But I think we can minimize it at least to the level that we're probably comfortable with in other activities that we do throughout the week. That's the best answer I can give to that. It's, it's a sticky question. That's the best answer. These aren't easy questions, and there aren't easy answers to this. But I'm trying to, 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 to apply Scripture, which is the living Word of God, to what's happening all around us. So just to recap, first, Christian hope isn't, is first characterized by a deep longing for communion with God, specifically the communion with God we only experience when we worship with other Christians. Second, Christian hope is characterized by preaching truth to our feelings. And these second two points are going to be real quick. Just bear with me. Christian hope is characterized by preaching truth to our feelings, specifically when our feelings contradict what we know to be true. Look at verses 6 to 7. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So if you remember, the first complaint is that the psalmist is not, he, he, he's, he's away from the temple. He cannot worship God in the temple. He's away from God's presence. This is the second complaint, the felt experience of living in life when the waves of life are just hammering you. The breakers are overwhelming you. And what's great about this psalm is he doesn't tell us what those are. Because if he had, then we say, well, that's, that doesn't apply to me. But we all know what it feels like when life is just hammering us. The disappointments in life when things don't turn out as we wanted them to. The sufferings in life the, when our bodies are breaking down, when we're missing friends and loved ones who are gone. These are the breakers that are washing over. This is the felt experience. He says, deep calls to deep. We're not totally sure what that means, but it seems to mean something like misery upon misery. Just is that 2020, right? Like, misery keeps adding on to misery, and like, oh my word, will this year end? This is his felt experience. 
what's so interesting about the psalmist is that in the midst of, of this context of being very honest about his sufferings, he, he preaches to himself. There's no other way we can describe what he's doing here. First complaint, I'm away from God, and my, I thirst as a, as, a, as a deer who is dying. And then verse 5, why are you cast down on my soul? He starts speaking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He's preaching. I mean, he's exhorting himself, like self. Hope in God. There is the great Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who, who pastored in London for 30 years in, in the last century. And he actually preached a whole series on spiritual depression. And he kicked it off by looking at Psalm 42. And he, he talks about the idea of, of preaching to ourselves, that there are times in life where for whatever reason the waves are overwhelming us and we're just caught in this cycle of like inner dialogues and nothing's helping. He says, there's times when we just have to gotta take ourselves in hand. He's this great Welsh, you know, English person. Got to take yourself in hand and preach to yourself what you know to be true. He said, there's even times we have to stop praying. This is interesting. There are times we have to stop praying because we're caught in this subjective like rule of our feelings. We gotta take ourselves in hand and we speak to ourselves. We, we, we preach to our own hearts what is true. And specifically, Psalm 42, this is what we preach to ourselves. First, we preach that God is with us. Look at verse 8. So remember, he's just laid out his felt experience of the breakers washing over him. Verse 8 By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. He's laid out his felt experience. This is what it feels like. This is interesting. He says, God, your breakers have washed over me. Your waves are crushing me. He's like, God, you're the one who's afflicting. You're the one who's bringing this suffering into my life. It feels like you're just toying with me. And then he, that, that's how it feels. But this is the reality he preaches to his heart. No, but by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. God's covenant love, the love that he has for his people specifically, the love that would drive him to leave his heavenly place, lay aside his glory, and die on a bloody cross. The love that causes him to leave the 99 for that one pesky sheep who can't get their act together. That love is with us. It's interesting, he doesn't say, my suffering is not a big deal. What I'm going through isn't real affliction. He doesn't say that. Neither does he say, and God is not the one bringing this into my life. He doesn't say either of those. He says, yes, this is what's happening. But what's true is that God is the one who is holding me. This is beautiful. Listen to this. And at night his song is with me. God is like a father singing a lullaby as I sleep. Every parent, I think, has a moment, maybe it's at two in the morning, when you're up with your newborn, and you're trying to get them to sleep, and you're so tired, and you're like, oh, I'm singing you like the millionth lullaby today, and then all of a sudden it occurs to you, oh my word, my parents did this for me, and I had no idea. That's what he's getting at. Look, this newborn infant is, all he knows is that he's uncomfortable, and he wishes he was back in the womb, and he's cold, and he's fussy, and he can't communicate, and he's just going to scream, and the whole time you're holding him, singing this lullaby over him, loving him, and you're present, and he'll never know that. That's what the psalmist is saying. Look, life feels crazy like you're being overwhelmed and you're just upset and angry, but the reality is that God is holding you like a father singing a lullaby while you sleep. That's the reality. 
God is with us. And when the night is long and hard, we preach that truth to our stubborn, disbelieving hearts. Yes, it feels like God has abandoned you, but he has not. He is your father, and he's singing you a lullaby while you sleep. Second, we preach to ourselves that every night ends. Every night ends. So if you look at the refrain, he he keeps coming back to, he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Remember, his complaint is that he's away from temple worship. We don't know why. If he's in exile, if he's sick, we don't know what's going on. But he says, I know I will once again praise you, whether it's in this life or the next. The distance I experience from God, it will end one day. Every night eventually gives way to morning, whether in this life or the next. And so for Christians, what we preach to ourselves is, yes, the night may be long and hard, but we know that God is the God of our salvation, and we know that he will bring the morning. Night cannot last forever, and we preach that truth to ourselves, because it feels like night can last a long time. So Christian hope is characterized first by longing, a deep longing for communion with God. It's second, it's characterized by preaching truth to our feelings, especially when those feelings contradict what we believe. Lastly, Christian hope is characterized by worship. We look at the way he ends his refrain in verses 5 and 11. He preaches to himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And then he finishes with worship. He says, my salvation and my God. The self-hope in God, because God is the one who saves me. He is one who delivers me, who redeems my life. He is my God. The psalmist finishes with worship. What do we do when we're in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle or affliction? What do we do when God seems absent? What do we do when God doesn't make sense? We worship. We fall on our knees and we worship before the God who is our God. Ecclesiastes 5 says, God is in heaven and we are on earth. There's a moment when we recognize, I don't understand what's going on, but I do know that you are God and I am not, and I will worship. I will choose to worship regardless. Christian hope is characterized by longing for God, by preaching truth to our feelings, and at the end of the day, by worship. Life is messy. It's in the beginning. Life is messy. 2020 has proved that. And there's a lot that we don't know, and we try our best to make it through, and things are unclear and confusing. Life is messy, you know. So we long for God with all our hearts, for his presence. We take ourselves in hand, and we preach truth to our feelings. But above all, what grounds our hope when life is very messy is the fact that we worship a God who is not messy, who is not confused, who is not unsure what is coming next. We worship him, who is our very life. Let's pray. God, what a... What a word you have to give us from Psalm 42. I I hope I've done even a small justice to it. We thank you that you have passages that you've given to us 